0: I thought trying to write a a fiction book that would really give people a feel for what spaceflight is like, I thought not only would that be an interesting personal challenge, but also, once people have read this book, they'll have almost an intuitive feel of what those various things are. And, And so it gave another avenue to share the extremely rare experiences that I've been lucky enough to have.
1: That's Commander Chris Hadfield, Canadian astronaut, pilot, musician, and now the author of a Cold War space thriller called The Apollo Murders. He's our guest on this first episode of season three of Explore, the Canadian Geographic podcast. Welcome back to Explore, I'm David McGuffin. It's great to be back in this chair and talking with you all again from the Sir Christopher Dace reading room at the headquarters of the Royal Canadian Geographical Society at 50 Sussex Drive, right here overlooking the mighty Ottawa River, one of the world's great exploration routes. We'll get to our conversation with Chris Hadfield in a minute. It's a fascinating one. You're really going to like it. But I first wanted to tick through some of the exciting changes we have in store for you in season three. The big one is that we're no longer a limited series of just eight or ten episodes. We're going to be coming out with new episodes every two weeks over the next year and hopefully beyond. We're going to be talking, as ever, with some of the world's leading explorers, authors, scientists, historians, leaders, and more In the coming weeks, that will include Truth and Reconciliation Commissioner Marie Wilson. She'll be talking about First Nations relations in Canada, but she'll also be talking about the first ever National Day of Truth and Reconciliation, which is happening September 30th, right across the country. Our CGS Explorer in Residence, Adam Schultz, is back to the podcast. He's always a popular guest. Uh, He'll be talking about his latest book, Somewhat Spooky Adventures in the Labrador Region, and his recent canoeing adventures into other parts of Canada's north as well. And we also have a very warm welcome to our newest explorer-in-residence, Emily Choi. She'll be on the podcast. She's a leading scientist studying the impact of climate change in the Arctic, particularly on Arctic seabird life. So we're looking forward to that and, of course, many, many, many more conversations in the months to come. At the end of each episode, we also have a fun new segment that involves you, the listener, directly. It's called Can Geo Soundscapes. We play a short clip of your audio or video of sounds that are iconically Canadian. Could be bird sounds, could be wildlife, could be wind through the pines, could be traffic or a busy market. Whatever it is, we want you to send those in to us so we can play them at the end of the podcast. So stick around at the end of this episode for that. So now to Chris Hadfield. Chris Hadfield. I'm going to introduce him, but I think he probably needs very little introduction. He's arguably Canada's most famous astronaut. I'd say he probably is Canada's most famous astronaut. He's possibly our most famous Canadian. He was the first Canadian ever to walk in space. He was also the commander of the International Space Station. And it was on the International Space Station where he had this incredibly viral moment. His cover version of David Bowie's Space Oddity, which he recorded on the International Space Station, has been viewed by hundreds of millions of people since first appearing on YouTube back in 2013. And now, along with being an astronaut, a fighter pilot, test pilot, motivational speaker, Chris Adfield has added novelist to his long and impressive resume. His new book, out in October, is called The Apollo Murders. It's a space thriller, and it's an historical what-if What if Apollo 17 wasn't the last mission to the moon, and what if that next mission had been a military one, with plans to aggressively take on the Soviet Union's presence in space? Intriguing, right? It's a page-turner, I promise you, but the Brits might call it cracking good read. Chris Hadfield, welcome to the Explore Podcast.
0: David, it's a pleasure to be joining you and everybody with Canadian Geographic. Thanks for the invitation.
1: Pleasure on this end as well. I just want to start out with the pandemic that we're in, first of all, before we get to the book. How has the pandemic been for you?
0: I think it's maybe been not as different for me as it has been for so many people, because I've already lived in an extremely, completely isolated place, surrounded by sort of an invisible danger. Um with uh, completely virtual contact with everybody else away from my family, and for a period where I didn't know how long it was gonna last. You know, that's what life on a space station is like. So I think the, the years of preparation and training for that, and then the actual experience of it, I think they set me up well for the pandemic. And I think it's maybe helped with my family as well. And then just from a professional side, uh the transition to virtual has provided a lot of opportunity as well it's been extremely busy uh working with a lot of different companies including one that's with covid detection uh, very rapid covid detection and then you know a, a bunch of other things i'm interested in and uh during that time i wrote an entirely new book a thriller uh, novel book which a uh, new type of book for me to write so yeah it's been different but i think not too abnormal for me. And, and overall, it's been quite productive. And fortunately, my whole family's been healthy. We've been lucky.
1: That's good news. Yeah, so let's get to that book that you wrote during the pandemic. So that's a good use of time for all of us. The Apollo Murders, which is a, a lot of fun to read. I would encourage everyone to go pick it up. It's space. It's NASA. It's the Russian Space Agency. There's a, there's a Cold War spy thriller element to it. Uh, there's a murder in it. Um, but I also feel like there's a lot of you in there as well. Um Kazemekis, who's the main character, um, guitar playing, test pilot, who has, uh, the book opens with a very dramatic scene where he has a bird strike flying low over the Chesapeake, which is, uh, I believe, a moment in your life as well.
0: It definitely is. There's huge overlap. Naturally, uh, everybody says right what you know. But imagine, David, that you had flown to space three times and lived off the world for six months. I think when you return, at least I felt when I returned, you're faced with the question of what do you now do with this human experience? You know, and you could just sort of go, "Eh, that happened. Mm -hmm. Or you could, you know, try and figure out how can I at least tell my family about this, or how can I share this, or what is the point of this? And and I kind of looked at it as uh, I was the vanguard, or the representative of a lot of people. A lot Canadian taxpayers paid for me to go, and so I feel very much a great responsibility to have as many people benefit from the experiences as I can, and that's why you know I teach at university and work with schools and and you know, do interviews like this one and write about it and talk about it and make videos about it, do TV series about it. But I thought uh, trying to write a, a fiction book that would really give people a feel for what space flight is like, I thought not only would that be an interesting personal challenge, but also uh, once people have read this book, they'll have almost an intuitive feel of what those various things are, and and so it gave another avenue to once again try and find an effective way to share the extremely rare experiences that I've been lucky enough to have.
1: The descriptions in space, especially, are, are just so incredibly vivid, um, and there's some incredible scenes up there, uh, and even just the sort of the more mundane aspects of it. I, and there's a, a scene where a guy throws up in his spacesuit, which is certainly <laughs> quite dramatic. Is that something that happened to you?
0: Uh, now, I've never thrown up inside a spacesuit, but astronauts have. And because it's quite disorienting and often we're forced to do a spacewalk within a day or two of getting to orbit, while your body is still in the throes of adaptation to weightlessness. And your, body's, your balance system is so confused. It's as if you just came off a horrible spinning ride at the fair, you know, and now you've got to lock yourself mm-hmm. inside a pressurized suit for eight hours. And, and the, the, the vertigo of it and the claustrophobia of it and such, it affects everybody differently. And almost everybody feels some sort of sickness when they get to space. Uh, and normally we don't want to do a spacewalk right away. But in, in this case, yeah, one of the characters has what is a pretty common experience, and that is uh, bad Nausea, But while inside the suit, because as, as you see in the story, they had to do a spacewalk right away. And so, yeah, throwing up inside a spacesuit is just I, I've spoken to astronauts who have had that experience. It's, of course, a misery. It's even a technical hazard. You know, you could you could suffocate in there. So. So, yeah, it's uh, I thought it was an interesting both insight, but also a, a, a thing that could happen in the storyline that would just ratchet up the tension one more notch.
1: One thing I really loved about it, I got to, I was a reporter based in Moscow for a few years at the end of the 90s and spent a lot of time covering the, the Russian space program, specifically Mir. And um, the thing I loved about this book was that the Russians in this novel are not cartoon villains. They're, they're You give them real credit for the genius of that space program, for what they achieved with what they had, and just the dedication of the people. And I'm wondering... Just how much of that was driven by the time you spent in Russia with that space program and, and the people you met?
0: I lived in Russia for about five years, all told. Um, I was NASA's director of operations in Russia for a couple of years. Um, there was an 18-month period. I didn't come back to the United States. Even though I was working for NASA, I was their, their director over in Russia. And so and I learned I studied the language for 20 years, and, and so I, I speak passable Russian. And, and then I, I trained to be uh, a cosmonaut to be able to fly their rocket ship, their Soyuz and their space capsule, the Soyuz capsule. I helped build the Russian space station Mir on my first flight. And then, of course, I had Russian crew members with me during my second and my third space flight. So lots of understanding, I think, of the Russian space program and to some degree, Russia and its people also. And it's so easy to uh, categorize some other part of the world as one dimensional or maybe just two dimensional. But of course, every single Russian person is different and they have their own desires for every single day. And there is no uniform monolithic uh, definition of what a a Soviet person or a Russian person is. And people are motivated by their own goals and their own dreams. And they're trying to be good contributors to their own particular part of society. And, and that's been my experience. You know, I was a fighter pilot, a combatant in the Cold War, intercepting Soviet bombers off the coast of North America. So an armed airplane, intercepting an armed Soviet bomber, where with a couple of, uh, switch flicks, I could have kicked off you know, World War III. So I was right on the edge of seeing the Soviet Union as the enemy. But even at that time, uh, when I intercepted one of those Soviet bombers, it was on Christmas Eve. And after we'd identified that they weren't up to hostile intent that night, and as we were peeling away, over our radio frequency came this deep Russian voice saying, Merry Christmas. You know, just because they're just people too. And and yeah, we have different political agendas and and some pretty egregious cases of bad nationalistic and human behavior. Mm. But at the same time, the common experience of being human is the dominant one, and when you live a place in a place for a while, I think you get much more sensitized to that. And so, I wanted to show that every single person in the book is imperfect, and is is motivated by different goals, and not everybody is completely sane. and And so, uh, so I, I built all the characters that way. I wanted people to see uh, inside, uh, you know, beyond the Iron Curtain, uh, the the Cold War, the you know, the Soviet space program, very monolithic and, and obscure. But in fact, just a bunch of people yeah. trying to do some really complex things as well as they could personally. And uh, and I think I was quite delighted with how my characters grew as I wrote the book. And and there's one character in there I didn't even intend to have in the book at the start who becomes a pivotal character in the book, who uh, everybody who's read the book really loves Now, that particular character, so... so, Svetlana? Svetlana, Svetlana? yeah, Yeah, Svetlana. Great
1: character. Yeah,
0: you know, she's a badass of a person, too. So so it really worked out well. But yeah, I I couldn't have written any of that without, I think, learning the Russian language and then spending enough time in Russia to truly get a feel for the place, um, both uh, physically as well as a sense of the thousand-year-old culture that defines really what Russia is.
1: The great thing about Svetlana is, uh, as you point out in the book, she was was one of several at that point Russian cosmonauts. You know, there, she'd had predecessors, and decades before NASA was doing the same. You know, and just uh, also just an interesting aspect of that space program.
0: It was really important to me uh, as an astronaut and a, and a test pilot that this book be real. You know, yes, it's a it's a thriller fiction book, but. Uh, it, it's probably 95% of the things in the book are all real things, things that exist, things that happened, people that were real. Over half of the characters in my book are real people. So that made it a lot of fun to write. But it also gave me a real strong imperative to, uh, to choose my characters and to write them as all those people actually behave. And so to have a woman cosmonaut, you know, It sounds maybe like, oh, well, of course, you know, just pandering. But no, Valentina Tereshkova flew in the early mid-60s. And and Svetlana Savitskaya, um, a a Russian cosmonaut, she was the world aerobatic champion. And she was a military test pilot in in the Soviet Union in in Moscow. um, And she flew in space multiple times. So you could look at the book and go, ah, that's not real. But you're wrong. The book is... Uh, completely based on the reality of what was going on, the Russian spy space station, what was happening on the moon, actual events with those things. Uh, It's so closely interwoven with fact that I think that adds a layer to the book that, that most mysteries don't have
1: the The thing I like about it, too, is it does give the Russian sort of side of that space race, which you don't get a lot. I mean, the Apollo program gets a lot of attention for good reason, but um it's nice to see what they were doing on their side. And I'm wondering how much of that was fed by conversations you had with like Soviet era, cosmonauts.
0: There is a professional society for astronauts or for space flyers. It's called the Association of Space Explorers. And, and right now, to, to be a fully-fledged member, you have to have got uh, above 100 kilometres from sea level, uh, mm-hmm. where we legally define where space starts. And um, and you have to have gone around the world once uh, above that altitude. So, you know, you need to have some sort of membership rules. Of course, now with commercial spaceflight and people going on uh, up and down flights, there'll be different levels of membership, I'm sure. But the Association of Space Explorers for 40 years has been the meeting ground of Everybody who's flown in space, no matter whether you're from the former Soviet Union or or the United States or, you know, all the other countries that have flown, Canada included. And so I was president of the Association of Space Explorers for several years. And so I got to know everybody. I got to know the Mercury astronauts and all the Apollo guys and, and the original Soviet guys, like, you know, the third and fourth people to fly. I got to know Alexei Leonov. Uh, Quite well. He he was a longtime friend. The first human being to do a spacewalk, and he was the one Mm -hmm. designated to walk on the moon. He was heavily involved in it. If they had managed to solve their rocket problems in time, and and they're mentioned in the book as well. But if they'd managed to get that big rocket working, it would have been Alexei who would have been the the Soviet Neil Armstrong. And, And but Alexei was one of the best people I've ever met. Immensely capable. He was a, a gymnast and an engineer and a pilot and a skydiver, a vastly experienced cosmonaut, hugely respected, but also an artist. To go into his house was like to go into uh, a museum of and he had painted and sculpted everything, even the design of the home, and had a really global view and a recognition mm. of, yeah, national politics are important, but w- hey, we are all people and we need to share these experiences. So yeah, I got to know. Uh, everybody who's flown in space. And, And that I think really helped with my depth of understanding to help write the Apollo murders.
1: Hi, I want to take a short break from this interview to plug our sister publication, Canadian Geographic magazine. It is truly one of this country's great magazines. I subscribe and I love it for both the amazing articles about this country and the photography, which is always stunning. The September-October edition is out now on newsstands, along with excerpts from this very Chris Hadfield interview. It also boasts a cover feature by Alana Mitchell exploring the fate of endangered caribou herds across the country. The always popular annual geography quiz is in this edition. There's a map insert. Don't you love maps? I do. It's a map of ocean innovations. And there's a collection of reviews of new fall books. There's a story by Adam Schultz about the focus of his new book, and there's an excerpt from Thompson Highway's forthcoming novel. A subscription is only $28.50 for a year, or $55 for two years. That gets you both the print magazine and digital access, and subscribers become members of the Royal Canadian Geographical Society. There's a nice bonus. Go to cangeo.ca forward slash subscribe to get your subscription. It takes just a minute to sign up. And now, back to our podcast. Would you mind reading an excerpt? Do you think would that be? No, no, that'd be fine. What uh, the space battle outside at uh, the bottom of one eighty-two? When well, don't
0: don't give the story away to everybody here, but um,
1: I don't think it does. I, it's just such a great, vivid scene, and it does actually lead to other questions too. So,
0: all right. So, um, just for the people that are listening, if you haven't read the book yet, uh, Michael, Luke, and Chad are the three Apollo crew members. And uh, Chad is the commander and um, Luke is the uh, lunar module pilot and Michael is the command module pilot. So Michael, Luke and Chad and uh, Chad and Michael are inside the ship and Luke is outside on a spacewalk and they have intercepted a Soviet space station called Almaz, a real space station that actually existed, a spy space station um, that was actually up there and and that. You'll read the book, but the events that happened to this space station in my mystery um, are explained as to what actually happened to the real Almaz itself. Okay, so I'm going to pick up with Michael, who's uh, talking to the other two crew members, and Mission Control is listening. What's going on? Michael could only see the whole fuselage section of Almaz in his window. Chad called. The lead cosmonaut is pushed off of Almaz. He watched in disbelief as the spacewalker floated across to Pursuit — Pursuit is the name of their ship — and grabbed a handrail near Luke. So there are Soviet spacewalkers on the outside of Almaz when the Apollo ship has come up to dock. He moved closer, and then he swung his wrench toward Luke's visor. "'Luke, watch out on your left!' Chad yelled. Luke, his feet hooked in their restraints, deflected the blow with his arm, and raised back with his bolt cutters. You bastard, he yelled! The cosmonaut got his arm up in time to protect his visor and the bolt cutters bounced off. And now the second cosmonaut made the leap and began maneuvering towards Luke from the other side. He started twisting back and forth in the foot restraints, swinging the bolt cutters in an arc to keep them both at bay. His other hand held high to ward off the blows. Michael could hear Luke's grunting and harsh exhalations. Boss, we need to get Luke inside now. Agreed. Luke, pop your feet out of the foot restraint and I'll haul you clear. Michael pushes transmit button. Houston, if you're hearing this, the cosmonauts are on pursuit and attacking Luke.
1: Just one of the many, many thrilling space scenes in this in this book, Chris Hadfield. I'm just wondering, is you've alluded to the fact that this is based on something that actually happened. Is this something you would have trained for as well yourself?
0: The whole idea of... Launching from Earth and rapidly intercepting a foreign adversary's spaceship, that's what the space shuttle was designed for. And mm. people don't know that. But they didn't have enough money. NASA didn't have enough money. And the Nixon government got the Air Force, with, you know, the predecessor to uh, with Space Command and Space Force, They got them to put a bunch of money into the shuttle with the idea that the shuttle could launch out of California into an orbit that would go straight around the poles, get to the other side of the world. And while they were on that first orbit, intercept a Soviet or any other country's satellite, grab it, stick it inside the payload bay of the shuttle, close the doors and then come back and re-enter in one 90 minute flight. That's what the space shuttle, what what its early design was. limits were four and and so when you're looking for precept for a for a thriller story then obviously that gave me real room of a, of a real life thing of a profile that uh, that an apollo a final apollo mission could have could have been tasked to do where the government didn't have enough money through nasa to fund the mission but wanted to compromise and, and meet air force objectives as well and so that's very much the heart of, of how I constructed the plot for the Apollo murders. And then the the idea of combat in orbit, uh, people don't know, but the Almaz space station was armed, and not just hmm. like with a knife or a pistol, but it actually had uh, a machine gun mounted on the outside of the Almaz space station. It was a modified machine gun from one of their bombers, one of their long-range tail tailgunner bombers. So... They recognized at the time that since they were building a secret spy space station, that it needed to be defended just in case Americans came with hostile intent. And uh, astronauts and cosmonauts have always flown in space with weapons on board, pistols. Now, they're, they're partially, you know, for the very low probability of needing them in orbit. But if you do an emergency landing somewhere around the world in the wilds of whatever, the Rockies or, or the, the Urals or somewhere, then you could, it could be a day or two before anybody rescues you. And so just your ability to defend yourself against wildlife is why we had pistols in the survival kits of the, uh, of the Soyuz that I flew. So that provides an interesting reality in order to build a, uh, a thriller novel where you know, in fact, uh, spaceships and space flyers were armed and so it provides room for uh, room for a lot of story.
1: It's fascinating. It's a, an element of the space program I didn't really know about. I'm just wondering, too, if there's a slight warning in the book, too, about the dangers of that kind of militarization of space.
0: Well, you know, there's nothing, unfortunately, sacred about space. It, you know, it's, it's just a legal definition. Where does space begin? You know, people are con- going to continue to act like people. And... I mean, I was 25 years in the Air Force. I was a combat pilot in the Cold War. And those countries that, I mean, if you just go back, say, to the Second World War, what are the numbers? I think we decided, well, we can't resolve this through discussion, so let's kill 70 million people. You know, that was how we, as a species, decided that we needed to reconcile our differences, which it's just horrific you know that we couldn't come up with any other way to resolve our own particular goals and aims and but i recognize also that you know we we have huge inertia of of the systems that that control us and and we have individual objectives and we have inequities and we have shortages and you know it's it's never going to be perfect until people are perfect and that's not's going to that's not going to happen and so uh, as soon as we start um, living permanently in space, we're going to have to have the same sort of controls in place that we've had to put in place on Earth. You need rules, you need laws, you need a legal system, you need societal uh, norms, you need cultural norms. I mean, Canadians are incredibly law-abiding, you know? Just think about how you go through your day and how you resist temptation so many times and you don't even think about it because by culture we're extremely law abiding but we still have a police force and you know and the mounties and and you know an intelligence service ceases and we have the military because we recognize that humans are imperfect and that's going to happen no matter where we go in orbit or on the surface of the moon or on mars however the international space station has had 15 nations, including many of those that fought each other to the death in the Second World War, who have lived for the last 20 years on the spaceship under a different set of laws, the International Crew Code of Conduct. That's not an Earth set of laws. It's our own set of laws that supersede what's going on on Earth. And we have lived productively and peacefully and internationally on the space station despite great varieties of animosity and political and financial troubles on Earth ever since, you know, the year 2000. And and so, so it does bode well. There are other choices. We don't all have to have our most base behaviors dominate, you know, the outcome of what's happening. And I think it's a really historic time in history right now, David, as we... Are on the verge of starting to settle the moon. Whose laws are we going to live by? Living on the moon? Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, the early work we did coming out of the Apollo program leading to cooperation between Russia and or the Soviet Union, the United States with Apollo Soyuz, and then Mir, where the United States contributed to Mir and Canada too. And then the International mm-hmm. Space Station, that's been generations of laying a groundwork of peaceful work and cooperation that set us up well to maybe behave differently on the moon than we have historically in some regions on the Earth. It's not gonna happen automatically. And you know, I, I run an entire uh, organization called the Open Lunar Foundation. I'm the chair of the board that is pursuing mm-hmm. just that. And, and so when you read the Apollo murders, I wanted to truly tell what was going on and not just from a, an enmity point of view, but actually how it looked from the individual person's point of view. What did it look like from Nixon, from Kissinger, from, from you know, the head of the Soviet space program at the time, a guy named Chelamai from Andropov, mm-hmm. from all those people's point of view, what agenda were they following? And then maybe how could we have a little more clear look at what we're all doing right now and recognize the really important stuff is how are we establishing the rules and laws as we start to leave Earth permanently? So maybe people will get a little better feel for that while while they're hopefully being thrilled and excited thrilled. by the Apollo murders. Yeah,
1: exactly. And there, uh, just a, another granular question about the book itself. There's a, a possible KGB mole inside the Apollo program, and I'm just what, is that is that based on something?
0: I don't know of any KGB moles inside the uh, the Apollo program or yeah. the space program, um, yeah. but uh, there are all sorts of examples of very deep moles. Um, that have been publicly, made public knowledge in the United States. Mm. So you have to think, of course, that the converse is true, and there are American moles within the Soviet, now Russian program, and that, you know, all all the countries of the world that have secrets worth keeping, you know, you, you can't just uh, have your own police forces. You have to figure out a way that optimizes, you know, your own particular agenda. None of it perfect, none of it. Maybe what you want, but just the reality of where we are, and so within the space programs, there are a lot of really valuable secrets. You know, things that took decades to develop, that are very expensive things to know about, and and that give a great understanding of maybe what's happening on the surface, spying from space or sensing things from space, or things like uh, the Star Wars program under Reagan, where you could actually put defensive weapons up there so that Mm -hmm. no one could send a space-based ballistic weapon to come across and attack your own country. When you get to that level, then, of course, it's just an extension of our behaviors right across all other industries. So there's no reason Mm -hmm. not to think that within the space, the Air Force, now the Space Force, within NASA, within U.S. government, there's no reason that you could possibly conclude that there aren't you know, deep moles somewhere in there. And so you have to be, uh, you know, aware of it and think about it and have layers of security. And that's why you have secret and top secret and everything that goes beyond that. You know, you have to right. you have to protect the things that are valuable to your own society and recognize that those are just sort of the undesirable but natural outflows of all the worst types of human behavior.
1: So will we be hearing or seeing more of Kazamekis and but uh, is there is there more to be told
0: I'm already working on a on the next book this book gave me a really good framework and I think the early 70s are a really ripe time because of the Cold War Vietnam the rise of women's rights uh, within the US legal system um, Watergate and what a mess that was making of the US uh, politics right at the very top Uh, all of that was happening Uh, And and so there's huge natural intrigue uh, in amongst all of those factors. And there was also quite a bit happening on the aerospace front. It was the early development of of stealth fighters, um, or stealth technology. Uh, Soviet fighters were being uh, taken uh, as a result of the Vietnam War deep into the desert uh, of Nevada and flown secretly and then flown as adversaries so that uh, American pilots could be better prepared for, for future conflicts. And 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 so there's all of that really happening. And so it puts me in a good position to maybe keep some of the characters out of the Apollo murders. And as you say, Kaz Zemeckis is, uh, I, I chose his and, and developed his character very deliberately based on an area that I have deep personal experience and expertise. You know, where, where Kaz is in that bird strike accident that opens the book, that happened to me uh, not in an F4 I did fly F4s but but that happened to me when I was a test pilot with the US Navy um, so so you know at least uh, the impact not not the ramif- not the after effects of it so so I have a deep experience in the area and so it provides a lot of fertile ground uh, for for the next book to think about which of those characters I could I could carry over I really like JW I like Laura I like Svetlana I like Kaz and and I need to think about how to build another whole credible storyline. And I've been working on it for a couple months now and starting to talk to people about it. Um, I even got a, a, a tentative name for the follow on book, which I'm not going to tell you, but, okay. uh, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I really enjoyed the writing process and I obviously uh, I've had good success writing, uh, Nonfiction before. This is my first foray into fiction, but to have, you know, James Cameron love and endorse this book, and and Andy mm-hmm. Weir and and uh, Frederick Forsyth saying this is a book you just yeah. got to read, you know that that's a real strong motivator to me that that this is a skill that I can develop and and uh, you know have yeah. some success at. So so that and I enjoyed sitting at this desk that I'm talking to you at and coming up with the whole storyline and writing the book. So yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll write more fiction. And I think you'll see, uh, some familiar characters, uh, in in the next book that I write.
1: Yeah, that's great. It does. It does. You mentioned James Cameron feel very cinematic this book as well. So I think.
0: Yeah. James loved it. And there have been many, many movie houses that have already approached us for the rights to the book. And we're in, in conversation with a bunch of them right now. Um, uh, and because of the, you know, I have a high public profile, so I've got lots of people in the industry I've been talking to as well. Um, so, uh, you know, I've been talking to Ryan Reynolds a bunch because of all of his film experience. Mm. So, um, so yeah, I. I and if, but if I make a movie out of the Apollo murders, I, I don't want to make a movie that makes me cringe. You know, it has, right, it, right. it has to tell a cinematic story. It can't just be verbatim by the book, obviously. But at the same time, just like the book, I need it to be as close to reality as as the strictures of a two hour movie will will allow to really not just tell a story but but to to make it reflect the reality of the world that existed in seventy three
1: mm, yeah, well, the descriptions in the book are as I say so visual, so i like I could really see that happening um before we let you go I, there's a couple of questions I ask all our guests on this program, and um, one of them is in this day and age. What does it mean to you to be an explorer? Or what is an explorer? Um,
0: I I think it's fueled by curiosity initially. Um, Some people have learned early on, whether it's the way they're wired or whether it's just the environment that they grew up in, that uh, there's no real... Merit or reward in in continuous curiosity. It's sort of like I, I mean I heard somebody once say I was so glad to graduate high school, so I didn't have to learn anything anymore And I was just that gobsmacked me like how could you view life that way that? That you have such a, a subdued or, or suppressed or or non-existent sense of curiosity that you think by 17 years old, you now know everything that you ever need to know to live a full life. And so to me, I think it's very much keyed by an unquenchable curiosity. But the second piece, curiosity is fine, but curiosity is useless without a desire to find out the answer. You know, it's like when I post something on social media and people ask a question that, the answer is either in what I already posted or it's there at their fingertips. I mean, they have the internet in front of them just like I do. And they say, I'm curious about, but they aren't actually curious. They just want to be spoon-fed something without actually making the effort to explore their own curiosity and to try and turn the answer into part of who they are. And that, to me, is the real essence of exploration. To continuously be curious about everything around you the world and beyond, but also with the the unquenchable imperative to try to the best of our abilities to answer that curiosity and then make that answer uh, part of the, the, the pyramid that you stand on of understanding so that you can then ask even better questions in the future and hopefully within your life, um, not just improve your own understanding of what's around us, but maybe help other people understand everything around us as well that is my version and my understanding of exploration
1: excellent and the final question is you i mean you spent a big chunk of your life out of canada and very far from canada sometimes was there a place is there a place that you would go to in your head that was this spot in canada that was like your happy place or the you know just grounded you made you feel grounded is there a place in canada you can describe for us like that
0: Yeah, I've lived uh, many places. I've lived in six provinces and several states in the US. I lived in Venezuela for a while. I lived in Russia for five years, lived in Europe for a while, and then I've traveled, I don't know the total number, probably 100 countries. So yeah, I've I've been away from uh, Canada and from where I grew up for most of my life. But I was born in Sarnia, Ontario, and when I was an infant, my, um, my dad's grandpa, uh, who he called Granddad, who came, who was the one who brought our family to Canada from England on the Hadfield side, he looked at my dad, who was starting to have children, my dad and my mom, and said, what you're really gonna want is some sort of summer place to go to. And so he worked with my dad and helped him buy a summer cottage. Um, quite sort of, you know, not, not a complicated place, not a fancy place, but just a summer cottage. It's kind of an Ontario thing to do. And that's where I spent my summers growing up, and it's on an island in, in the St. Clair River. And the place that you grow up where you learn about, you know, yourself and, and things and, and, as you know, for a young boy, learning about girls and getting to know uh, buddies that I still see every day, to me, it, it became not only um, an instructional place, but uh, it really formed who I am. And to the point that when I met my wife, I started bringing her here as a high school student. And then as soon as we had finished with our global travels or we got to in a stable enough position, we bought uh, a cottage within walking distance of my parents. And a little humble place made in 1896, you know, just a, a little, sort of a classic, tiny little throw together cottage. But it's my favorite place in the universe. It's the favorite place I've ever been. It's not fancy. It's not particularly convenient, but when I'm home, I thought about it because I've been away from home so much. I feel like I'm exhaling more than I'm inhaling. You know, I feel like I can truly relax and notice the true nuance of everything around myself. I don't have to be on alert. I don't have to perform. And I'm accepted by the other cottagers on this island because we all grew up here together. I'm not, you know, some famous guy who's on the five dollar bill. I'm just, you know, Chris who's going to help you uh, put new blades on your lawnmower this afternoon. <laughs> and, and so to me, uh, this place where I'm speaking to you from, which is in that old cottage, uh, it, this little piece of Canada, this little place in the world, I looked for it from orbit all the time. You know, my eyes, as we came across the Great Lakes, they would naturally follow the shape of Lake Huron and Lake Erie and Lake St. Clair, and they would focus and try and find that little touchstone of home. And uh, it gives me great comfort to have a place like this in my life.
1: Yeah, sound incredibly lucky.
0: I am. and I know how lucky I am, David.
1: Fantastic. Well, listen, Chris Hadfield, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us about, can you tell us the name of the book?
0: The book is The Apollo Murders. And it is a thriller that's going to tell you some things that you just never suspected actually happened in the space program.
1: I entirely endorse that. Thanks again, Chris, and congratulations for the book.
0: Thanks. Pleasure to talk with you. Be well.
1: You too. Thanks for listening to this episode of Explore. Stick around for Kangeo Soundscapes, which will be coming in just a second. But I first have a big, big favor to ask. If you like this podcast, if you like this episode could you take a minute and please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this and give us a five-star rating. And also it would be a big bonus if you wrote a glowing review, like really lay it all on. I know this sounds like a bold ask, but the way the algorithm works for podcasts, this is the single best way to ensure that we reach more listeners and that this podcast can continue to thrive in the months and years ahead. So thanks so much for considering doing this for us. It means a lot. And now to our final item in this first episode of our new season, a new segment called Can Geo Soundscapes, where we ask you to send in a video or audio of sound from somewhere in this country that warms your heart or captures a moment. Try to keep it under 60 seconds, and you can tag us with your soundscape on both Twitter and Instagram, at Can Geo, or you can send it to us by email. The address for that is explore at Geographic.ca. And today, to prime the pump, I'm providing our Kangeo soundscape. It's the sound of a rushing creek coming out of the Gatineau Hills heading towards Meech Lake in Gatineau Park in West Quebec. I hope you enjoy. I found it pretty meditative. That's it for this episode of Explore. Until next time, when we explore again, I'm David McGuffin. I think right now we're enjoying very much looking back at the Earth and it's just a
0: fantastic experience and I just can't wait to get back
1: and start telling you... We have Simpson about June 10th with a fire brigade consisting of a number of yacht boats, each manned by 10 voyageurs. For us it means it means that history is very strong yeah, we flew low over every inch of the country that could be we we're hoping that he would fly at it. Well I guess 160 dives or so. There are shrimp fish swimming around outside. And it's just fabulous here. Well i a first for Canada.